and welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat and enjoy the conversation. This is episode 18 and today I am delighted to be joined by the incredible Rania Robinson, MD of Quiet Storm, the ad agency responsible for the Haribo ads we all love, where the adults talk with children's voices. As a woman of colour raising two mixed-race children, she shares her personal insights on how she has navigated discussions around race and discrimination. I believe we all have a responsibility to educate ourselves and our children so we can eradicate discrimination. So many parents have not known how to start discussions around Black Lives Matters and Rania shares the most incredible insights from her own family. This is a must listen for every parent, regardless of race or ethnicity. She also just happens to be my sister. So welcome. And today on my podcast, I am joined by the fabulous Rania Robinson, who also just happens to be my sister. But she is here really not as my sister, but in terms of really having some really deep level conversations around conversations that we should be having with our children. And the idea with this podcast episode is I want it to be helpful for parents who have children who identify as being children of colour. But I also want this podcast to be for people who have who don't identify as colour, but want to understand more about how they can begin to have these conversations with their children. So welcome, Rania. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Let's start off Rania, with some of your, you know, what were your early experiences as a child of colour? Well, I think my very first, probably most visceral childhood experience was starting school for the first time. I think it was probably either nursery or reception. I can't, I, I can't completely remember, but it was certainly the first school style experience I'd had having kind of come from Egypt and grown up you know with my family close to my in my family unit it would have been the first experience i would have had outside of the family and i distinctly remember not being able, not speaking a word of english and not being able to i remember sitting in the assembly hall with the it was a, it was a catholic school roman catholic school which was confusing anyway but it was <laughs> uh, and i remember having the hymn hymn book and looking at and all the, looking at all the other kids and they were apparently reading from this hymn book and singing and i couldn't read a single word of it and I and I and I distinctly remember that I mean it didn't I can't remember learning the language I mean for me it was sort of that and then suddenly speaking fluent English so you do as a young child you pick up the language very very quickly but I, I do absolutely that that's a that's a memory that has never left me of that sense of I am different to everybody else here um, and I can't connect with them in the way that they, and I, I felt a sense of difference that doesn't go that doesn't leave you that that kind of feeling yeah of, um, really belonging and and because there's so much emotion tied up to it it's the it's the it's that memory that sticks with us doesn't it and obviously you know we both went to the same primary school I was older than you when we came so obviously I had a command of, of English to a certain level but I think our experiences being of color and looking very different um, in skin tone and hair to others I think our experiences were affected by that can you you know when you think back to your sort of to your childhood can you remember very vividly aspects of of how people treating you differently or anything directly as a result of the, of the your color yeah i mean i was very conscious of my difference 
not just in terms of the way I looked and the language and but also the religious aspect of it we were in a roman catholic school our family were muslim so there was a big kind of mm. kind of self-consciousness around that as well and being different and obviously we're in a community where there weren't other muslims there weren't other people um from different backgrounds there were very very few like tiny tiny minority so i was very very self-conscious anyway about my difference but then you know on top of that you know i did experience racial abuse, being followed home, being called names, um, being asked kind of really sort of strange questions and very personal, inappropriate questions that, you know, around kind of way, you know, well, which to be fair, in a way kind of probably doesn't, uh, didn't hit home in the, in the way it might for somebody who was born in this country, but certainly kind of lots of preconceived ideas and, and assumptions around my ethnicity and my cultural background and my heritage and but i think probably also the level the consciousness that you that with the tv and, and what was happening on telly at that time that the programming mm. you know the jokes were uh you know stand-up comedians jimmy davison talking very like you know it was ex like explicitly racist jokes yeah. um things like mind your language which actually mom found <laughs> hilarious and actually we probably all found hilarious really but again when you think back on it, it was like compounding stereotypes um, around people coming from different cultures and different backgrounds. And so there was this kind of strong sense of not only being different, but not being embraced and welcomed and seen that there was some hostility uh, and negativity um, coming coming through as well. So I think, again, there are things that impact your confidence, there are things that, uh, that impact your self-esteem. You know, you, what ends up happening is you have a really strong desire. Well, certainly this is how I felt, a really, really strong desire to fit in. And I think I think there's lots of evidence of this. Uh, and I've sort of seen research around it, that kids that are in schools where they are a minority, they, they, it does impact on their self-esteem. I think that that's not quite the case when you have at schools with a high percentage of uh, kids of colour and, and yeah. they, do, they don't have the same um, sense of the, the negative impact that it that has on self-esteem. So I think there was a, a lot of a, a lot of stuff around that. I just wanted to be like everybody else. I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to be called Polly, have straight hair, <laughs> you know, all that kind of stuff. But I just, yeah, I just, I just, you just don't want to be different at that age. It's all about a sense of belonging. Um, I mean, we as humans, you know, as humans uh, feel a strong sense um or need to belong, don't we? And I think that's compounded as a child before you've developed a strong sense of self. Yeah, and I think certainly, you know, when I remember back to our childhood, there weren't really that many women in the media or in, in any sort of, you know, position as such that we could identify with. They, they just, you know, it was all Charlie's Angels with this perfectly blonde flicked hair yeah. and all of these other things. So so that exacerbated the feeling different and not being like other people, um, yeah. particularly in that. And certainly there's, I think there's been an article that's just been recently released, I think on the BBC, talking about as a country, we are one of the most diverse but certainly in some children's experiences where they are very much in the minority, they don't they don't experience that level of diversity. No, there absolutely wasn't the role modelling or visibility of, of women of colour on TV and the ones that were didn't necessarily embrace their natural looks or their natural hair. So again, I mean, that, I remember my hair being a massive bone of contention for many, many years. It wasn't until I got much older that I started to really embrace and celebrate my natural hair and love my natural hair but for years and years it was sort of trying to straighten it trying to make it do things it didn't naturally want to do <laughs> um, and, and yeah and it was just and now it's like you know it's um I love that I love I love you know having 
you know, I mean, big Afro. And actually, if you think about it, we were in the 80s and people were paying <laughs> lots of money to perm their hair, weren't they? And they'd get those curls that we had naturally. So, yeah, I think I think that, again, that that's something that took a bit of time for me. I just wanted, yeah, I, you want to reflect the people that are being positioned as kind of ideals of beauty in media and in magazines, well, across all of media and uh, and and the, around you, your peers as well. Yeah, but they're not, you're not necessarily seeing that. So you are now a mummy. Well, you've been a mummy for quite a while. Tell us a little bit about your family in terms of the profile of your family and the types of conversations that you have subsequently had to have with your children because they identify as black. So, yeah, so... They're different kind of conversations and they've been different conversations at different life stages, to be honest with you. And I think with my daughter, when she was very, very young, I remember her saying to me, I wish I was white. And it just, for me, it was heartbreaking. I couldn't even bear that she'd said that. And I think we live in Brent, which is one of the most multicultural boroughs in London. She was around a broad mix of, of, of ethnicities, but I think she probably looked at me versus her dad. And I, you know, I'm much lighter, obviously, you know, her dad's black, he's a dark, dark skinned black guy, black man, and I'm light skinned. And I think for her, she kind of wanted to maybe identify closer to me. And 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 that for me was all, you know, it was maybe certain friends that she was it was very hard for me to kind of get it in my head because it was it wasn't like our, my childhood experiences where I was one of you know, I was a single, or we were singularly, you know, one of very, very few people of colour, where she's surrounded by people mm. of, of colour. So I couldn't really understand where it was coming from. But I think what, what, what I kind of later established was that she was just looking to me, and I'm, I'm much fairer um, than she is. And I had to work really hard. And the same with her hair. She was asking me to straighten her hair from very young. And I had to work really, really hard to sort of find positive imagery um, of you know beautiful natural hair black women and really show her a positive representation and as she's got older and it didn't to honest, it didn't take very long you know I I, I, I don't straighten my hair I, you know I you know I've always embraced well not always in recent years certainly yeah. since probably around about 1920 embraced my natural hair and so I've I've really encouraged her to not straighten her hair and, and and kind of love what she's been born with. And actually, you know, she's completely different now. She's a very flat, proud black young lady now. She wears her hair, you know, natural and beautiful, and she's very kind of embracing and 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 proud of, yeah. of her natural looks now. But it, it was a bit of a journey. It it took a bit of work. But I, I think for me, it's important as a company. We've we've done campaign work around it as well, where we've delivered campaigns um, celebrating natural black hair as well. So I think it's something we're very active in, in our work life as well, um, and putting out positive um, imagery and representation, because there's such, such a lack of it, yeah. even now, yeah. even now, if you think about a lot of the, you know, famous black women, they're not necessarily wearing their hair natural, no. naturally. So even still, they're still seeing black role models, female role models, you know, wearing weaves or straightening their hair or, you know, so, so you, you, we, I've had to work on that quite specifically with her, but but she's you know that's not the case at all now. She's very um, embracing of that of her natural looks. And with my son, it's it's different. I mean, with him, it's been about around how he carries himself to ex some extent in terms of not being perceived as a kind of you know angry black man or you know that that kind of side of things. But also just his his how he conducts himself in the context of 
uh, the likelihood that he will get stopped and searched at some point. We know that black people attend, particularly young boys uh, or young adults, black uh, male adult, adults are more likely, 10 times, up to 10 times more likely to be stopped and searched than their, their white friends. So that's a conversation I've had to have with him around that, the likelihood that he's going to get stopped and searched, knowing his rights, how to conduct himself in that situation. So, you know, conversations that probably most mums, white Caucasian mums, wouldn't even think to have with their children. So, yeah, that that's... Um, Those are some difficult conversations to have because how do you, as a parent, when you're trying to explain that to your son particularly, how do you, how do you position that knowing that it isn't right that that happens so that you don't create this, you know, this anger as well and sort of perpetuate some of these stereotypes? How do you have those conversations and keep them positive? I think, I think it can be challenging to some extent because obviously my husband grew up in the 80s during Thatcher's government. And at that time, I think SUS was introduced, which is uh, uh, suspicious. I I can't remember exactly what what the acronym is, but it was the kind of early iteration of stop and search, basically. Mm. So he grew up as a young black man being stopped and searched relentlessly and being very badly treated by the police and being having experiences that were disproportionate, being very sort of manhandled, in, in, to be frank, and uh, and experiencing a huge amount of kind of bias in, in the whole stop and search experience. So he's got a very negative view of the police, understandably, from his young experiences. He struggled to kind of shape, really. Yeah. So I have to balance that a little bit with the kids. And because I think it's it's unfair to generalise in any situation and, and you know, judge everybody by by the same same brush. So I certainly wouldn't be um, trying to... to talk about the police as all being racist or all being bad or so I have to kind of balance that but with also giving the the children a a clear sense of awareness Mm. that this is a a good possibility something like this is you know they're going to get stopped stopped well certainly not so much my daughter but certainly my son so so I I think for me I try to be the kind of the 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 balanced voice of reason within it but you know obviously they, they they've seen what happened last year with George Floyd they're very aware they were just coming into their teens around that time. My son, you know, um, you know, it was at the time 13 last year. But obviously that has put a huge spotlight and created a lot of opportunity for discussion around it and for us to be able to talk to our children about it. And I think I try to give a balanced view, but there is a reality. And that reality is, you know, there will be, you know, there will be some members of the police force that are going to stop and search through their own unconscious biases and their own prejudices and may use disproportionate force or act in a way where, you know, um, which is not appropriate. So uh, the best advice I can give him is is really, with, you know, to, to try and maintain a level of trust yeah. In, yeah. in authority and in police, because there might be a situation where he's going to need to know that he can trust the police, but equally understand what his rights are if he does end up in a situation where, you know, he's having to deal with with. with, with with this yeah you've Rania you touched on this this whole idea about Black Lives Matters and I think personally I think many parents haven't actually had a conversation with their children about about Black Lives Matters not because they don't feel passionately about it because I think they just don't really understand it properly and they feel scared to navigate it can you kind of succinctly for the parents that are listening to this who don't identify as colour but want to raise children who are aware of diversity who embrace this concept of 
Black Lives Matter. There's lots of discussion about all lives matter and Black Lives Matter. Can you shine a light so that parents who are listening understand it better to begin those conversations? I think people really need to try, they have a responsibility to understand the challenges that the Black community face and, and have a, a real awareness. And I appreciate that it's very hard to identify fully with these experiences when you've never had them. But I think every parent has a responsibility to understand the inequalities and the inequities and, and then the issues and challenges that, that the black community face. And I think it's been very easy for us all to just think racism doesn't exist or it's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's confined to a very niche group. Whereas actually, you know, there has to be this recognition that whilst, you know, probably most, you know, most people would think of racism as, as terrible and, you know, awful and they wouldn't see themselves as racist, what they do have to understand is these unconscious biases mm. and these systemic inequalities that are that have come from decades and decades and decades of misrepresentation in media and or a lack of represent positive representation in media and through history of this country and you know so I, I, I do think it's like anything you 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 want your children to have a good understanding and a good grasp on our history on life on society, on and this is part of it. This is part of their education, and they and they need to understand it. And I think, I think we've all got a responsibility to 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 have a, a good sense of, of the, the the challenges. Um, you know, our you know our peers and and our community face beyond our own experiences. So, I think we all want well-rounded kids. We all want kids that you know are well-informed and inquisitive and curious. And this is part of it, particularly given how much cultural our society is mm. now, that these people are going to be interacting with people that come from different backgrounds, who've had different lived experiences. They need to understand their lives. And, and, and it's part of being empathetic and part of being a decent human being, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, so it's it's being able to relate to other people and relate to their experiences. And understand what's inappropriate, you know, and understand what, you know, a microaggression is and what, you know, something that they, they might not necessarily fully grasp. And if people don't understand ask become informed i think i think it's a it is a very very sensitive subject matter and i do think it makes people feel very uncomfortable but it we have a responsibility to to understand and appreciate other people's experiences yeah and i think that you know that's part of just an acceptance of the diversity of the world that we live in this day is not stereotyping people not treating people based on assumptions so speaking of that, because I know that this, you know, this was part of the challenge, I think, for a lot of parents was the distinction between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter. How would you... I think the point is the Black community are disproportionately affected by so much stuff that puts them in an unequal and disadvantaged position. And they're not the only people, don't get me wrong, that are experiencing mm. challenges in life, but they are disproportionately overly affected more than any other community. Um, you know, and that is from, you know, prejudice, unconscious bias, job opportunities, uh, right through to funding as a young as a as a business, uh, loans, 
how likely they are to get a loan from the bank. It, it, it's throughout every aspect. If you look at, you know, senior leadership, you know, black representation in senior leadership positions within organisations, that, you know, it's very, very limited. And I think that's a clear indicator of their ability to progress in organisations. And there's lots and lots of other data points yeah that the stop and search you know they're 10 times more likely to get stopped and searched so they are they are disproportionately impacted way and above any other community hence why of course all lives matter well that's a ridiculous thing to say yeah. but that's, that's again it's just detracting from our responsibility to, to recognize the inequalities um that the black community face way and above any other community that's in this country in this country obviously no, not when you look globally but in this country actually that's beautifully put and that makes it really much easier for us to sort of grasp rania before we started recording you were talking about obviously whilst you are identified as a woman of color you've not you've had to sort of in some ways you've learned through the experiences of being wife partner girlfriend to your husband what it actually meant to be a black man talk to explain because i know that there will be a lot of people who are doing their absolute best to be you know to to live authentically and be to make no judgment on people based on anything other than how they present themselves to to us in terms of their actions and their behaviors that will be thinking falsely you know we don't really have such a big racism problem here it's only a small pocket of people who've got really antisocial assumptions and behaviors talk us through what you have seen through your that has helped you see through the eyes of trevor specifically his experiences i think for me i was probably one of those naive people in a way because i grew up in the 70s in a very white community where I personally experienced racism. When I came to London, which is a multicultural society, I'm in an industry that feels very open-minded and liberal. I naively, and I'm embarrassed to say it now, but I, I naively felt like, okay, we don't have that same level of racism that we had in the 70s or that I experienced when I was growing up. And it wasn't until I started dating Trevor that I started to see with my own eyes, this prejudice and racism that's still very much alive and actually is is more kind of is probably more a mass scale than that kind of out and out racism that you that I think of, which is people being, you know, called names and being harassed and and and, and physical violence and things like that. It's a much more insidious for insidious mm. form of prejudice and, and racism, which is this kind of unconscious bias and preconceived ideas and and, and prejudice. And and the way I saw it with, with Trevor was taxi cabs not wanting to stop for him. You know, I used to have to go ahead of him and hail a cab, and then he would come come after me so we could get a cab to stop. If it was if it was him trying to hail a cab, the amount of cabs that would just go go around, or a woman, you know, moving her back, sitting on the tube, and they move their bag to the other side, you know, or, once, or someone, you know, they avoid sitting next to him, and, and things like that. And it's 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 very, I, I hadn't even kind of, couldn't even relate to that or identify with those experiences. And it was very easy for me to sort of brush some of these these things to one side. Sometimes I'd say to him, come on, you're being oversensitive. That was innocent. And But actually after spending a period of them, you realise this is not, no, 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 you're not imagining this. This yeah. is very real. You know, even I was in a bar, um, you know, with, with Trevor one one day and he, and he put his hand in my bag to get my purse out. And actually, to be fair, they didn't know we were together. And maybe you could go, okay, well, they wouldn't have, how would they know that you're together? 
but I, but I do wonder if it was because of how he looked that, that a woman sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said that gentleman's just taken your purse out of the bag and I was like actually he's my husband you know it's like you know so I don't know I mean maybe that you know maybe she would have done the same if it was anyone but we were clear I thought clearly together and you know we were still yeah. together in the I, I don't so so yeah it's, it's things like that so and I'm talking about seeing this over and over and over again. It's not one incident, it's repeated incidences. The real consistent one is taxi drivers not wanting to stop. Yeah. Pick him up for a ride. So, which is, you know, he's a very established, successful, professional guy. Not that, you know, um, that should be a sort of badge. It should, you know, but it, it doesn't matter who it is. But the point is, it's they couldn't have got it more wrong in terms of thinking he's going to try and evade his fare or hasn't got the money to pay for it or whatever it is they think, which is why they're not stopping. Yeah. And and we're not... Yeah. And of course, there's me, there's me sort of sniggering, which I shouldn't be doing. But actually, we're not even talking that long. You know, we're talking in the last decade, this these sorts of things are happening. And they're probably... Have you seen a shift more recently in any of these patterns? Well, I think what happened with George Floyd and the subsequent sort of spotlight on what's happening in America, and it's not just happening in America, it's happening here as well, uh, to, to, you know, a different degree, but it's certainly happening here, has made us all, you can't argue with it, it's happening, it's there, it's in front of our eyes, we're seeing it, and there's a lot more conversation around it, and there's a, a there's a, a lot more of a desire to understand and make change, and, and for, the, for a lot of people, I'm, you know, I don't mean obviously everybody, but certainly I would say there's a groundswell of recognition, understanding and support, you know. So I do think that's been the shift. The big shift has been the spotlight that's been on it. No genuine desire to drive change. I don't think you change attitudes and views overnight. They're deeply, deeply ingrained. Even in the most well-meaning people, they can't help the environment they've grown up in. They can't help the media that's been pushed out to them that's representing the black community in a certain way in programming, in the news, in, you know, so that's not going to happen, that's not going to change overnight, Mm. you know, but what I do see is a a groundswell of a recognition that there is a problem and there are inequalities and a desire to drive change. Yeah, it's there. And and I think part, you know, we have to, as you've said, quite eloquently, as parents take ownership and responsibility, we have a duty to raise our children with the information that they need so that they can be a well-rounded adult in society, accepting of everyone for who they are and not carrying these prejudices with them and these assumptions. And as you say, these unconscious biases as they get become older that might impact who they interact with, how they recruit, how they might behave and all of those bits. Now, Rania, I want, I want to sort of, you know, I'm very aware that you do a lot of work, not only within the advertising agency that you run, but also the uh, charitable part of what you do, the Create Not Hate. Could you just tell people a little bit more about those and particularly for those who might actively be able to get involved or? Yeah, well, we're obviously advertising such a powerful tool. You know, it, it can persuade, it can change minds, it can change attitudes, it can change behaviour. So we have always, as a business, felt a strong sense of, duty is the wrong word, desire, passion, to use the power of advertising and the power of creativity to do some good in the world and use it to support causes and organisations and issues that we care about. 
And obviously, you know, a lot of that is to do, obviously, you know, I run the business with Trevor. So a lot of it is around supporting marginalized groups, whether that's women or people of color or, um, you know, other, you know, other sort of marginalized groups. And so we've always done campaign work pro bono that is about sort of shining a light on an issue and, and getting people to see that issue differently and to, to drive behavioral change mm. and attitudinal change to deliver kind of positive impact. So we've always done things like that. Uh, we've done campaigns around gun and knife crime. We've done campaigns around, you know, embracing natural black hair. Uh, we've done stuff around mental health and um, stop and search and all sorts of things. So what, what we've done really is in 2007, Trevor founded Create Not Hate, which was probably more of a youth engagement program that still the output was still about campaigning and developing campaigns to drive change. But the big difference was was for him to bring in young people like him from his own background who either see advertising as, well, they probably don't even think of advertising as a career mm. choice, or they see it as a shut door, not for people like them, because they don't see like people like them in, in the industry. But for him, it was like he felt there was this all, all this brilliant talent, untapped talent, that we were missing out on as an industry. So he wanted to run these programs really to make these young people aware of advertising in the creative industries and give them a real life experience of it uh, with a view to unlocking their creative potential and getting them ultimately into the industry. Yeah. So what we started to do with Create Not Hate back in 2007 was get these young people to tackle social issues that they experience, that they live with every day. You know, often these campaigns are being run or being developed by people who have no real life experience of these issues because it's not necessarily something they're close to or, or happening within their community. So he went back to his old school, a kid had been stabbed in his old school, um, and he asked the young the, the young people at the school to develop a, a campaign to ta tackle gun and knife crime. Yeah. And we as an agency produced a film off the back of it, and we got it aired across the country and in cinemas, and it got global um, media coverage. And, and these young people got an opportunity to experience the industry. And and, and from, from literally coming up with the idea to everyone, all the cast, all the crew, everyone was came from Trevor's old community. Um, and actually one of the young guys who co-directed it with, with Trevor is now in the industry and, and he's now making films and oh, doing all sorts of career in the industry. So I think, but that's just one example. So that was something that was started in 2007. We relaunched it in light of George Floyd, um, and we've now set it up as a community interest company. So it can be self-funded and we can run these programs and, and deliver it as a sustainable program. So yeah. since then, quite a few campaigns, uh, uh, one around racism, which reached 300 million people. It went kind of stateside. <laughs> Yeah, huge, massive reach. We got support from the likes of WeTransfer and Spotify and uh, Ocean Outdoor and just loads of loads of Financial Times, The Guardian, Channel 4. Like, we just got a huge amount of media support where we were able to showcase this work that these young people have developed around racism and we tackled things like microaggressions and, yeah. you know, uh, asking people to kind of check their prejudice. And so, and we've since then done, like, as, as I talked about mental health, we've just done a, a, some films around Stop and Search and we're petitioning at the moment to get the police to review their uh, training and, and approach to, to Stop and Search. That's really, you know, so for people who want to get involved, if you're, you know, if you know young any young people who uh, want to participate, then we've got, uh, do get in touch, it's createnothate.org, also info at createnothate.org um, and 
there's we also have a GoFundMe um, if you did want to just um, contribute because it is a not-for-profit. We we rely on funds uh, fundraising to run these initiatives. There's a lot of stuff that we do pro bono ourselves as an agency, and we get a lot of industry support. Um, but we, we do rely on um, contributions to. Yeah. to and we will share we will share the link so um if you go to the usual so www.drmaryhan.com forward slash library you will then if you pop your email address in you'll then have access to all of the free resources across all of the podcasts but specifically all the links that rania um has spoken about and clearly it's something that both you and trevor are phenomenally passionate about and you're you're making impacting change from the bottom up you're living and breathing this and i just feel so proud and honored that you're my sister too just to finish off before i go super gushy if you could give a parent of who has a child that identifies as color one piece of advice what would you give them oh wow oh god it's uh <laughs> well that's a difficult question you on the spot. Just one piece of advice oh god just uh Gosh, it's very difficult. I just think for me, it's about that kind of sense of self, strong sense of self, no matter what you experience, no matter what you see, no matter what how other people's kind of behavior to maintain that sense of self and that strength and that power and the beauty and the fabulousness um, that, that, we, that we embrace and we encompass uh, is just to not let other people define how you feel about yourself. Oh, that's amazing. And then one piece of advice for a parent who is not, who wants to educate their children, who wants to start having those conversations, what would you say? Understand, really make an effort to and take the time to try and really understand these these experiences and these um, putting yourself in somebody, you know, somebody else's shoes. And if you don't have friends of color who can talk to you and explain to you some about their, some of their experiences. I mean, this is something that we both Trevor and I found, you know, happened after George Floyd and particularly Trevor was his, his friends were asking him about his experiences. They wanted to understand what he'd experienced and, you know, things they had conversations they'd never had before, but, you know, so obviously that helps if you've got friends of color, but yeah. if you don't take the time to, there's lots of, uh, lots of, brilliant books out there that give you a real insight. Um, you know, there's a lot that happens around Black History Month as well. Uh, there's a lot of literature out there and a lot of, you know, editorial and, and, and kind of coverage. Take the time to read that stuff and, and, and try and kind of put yourself in the shoes of, of the Black community and, and some of the experiences. Understand the history, learn more about the history. Brilliant. Awesome, phenomenal advice. Thank you, Rania, thank you so much for being here and I hope you have all enjoyed this is a podcast I think that you should be listening to time and time again and maybe even sharing with your children so if you have enjoyed this podcast episode as always please follow rate and review the podcast so that we can share the love so until next time bye